Hello, listeners. I'm Michael Lanspo, Web Director for the ATS Critical Care Assembly. Thank you for listening. This Breathe Easy podcast pertains to the Volume Chaser Study, a multi-center effort from the Discovery Network. I'm joined today by Dr. Tina Chen, Assistant Professor at Montefiore Medical Center, who's one of the investigators chairing this study. Uh, First of all, thank you, Tina, for joining me. Thank you for having me. Let's start by, if you wouldn't mind, telling me what the Volume Chaser Study is. Volume Chaser Study is a study that um, came out of the formation of Discovery Network. It's a combination of CCM, USIT Group, and CCTPM, which is a pharmacy group. Um, Our goal is to conduct a multi-center observational study um, to look at the variation in fluid resuscitation and vasopressor use in patient in shock. Can you tell me what the rationale is for the study? Like, why should we study variability in fluid administration or vasopressor administration? Sure. Um, As you know, fluid resuscitation is one of the mainstay of therapy in patient in shock. In the um, surviving sepsis campaign, it's recommended that we give 30 cc per kilo of fluid within the first three hours. Um, Within the guideline, it also wants people to do further assessment of patients' um, hemodynamics to come up with a clear diagnosis of etiology of shock, and it also recommends using um, dynamic assessment over static assessment. Um, But are we really doing that, and is this uh, making an impact in our patient's survival? Um, As you know, in the past few years, with the publication of all these studies comparing early goal-directed therapy and usual care, there isn't a great difference um, in terms of patient outcome. So part of what we want to do is to look at what usual care is um, and all these different centers and different um, treatment settings, what clinicians are using to decide how they're going to resuscitate patients in shock when they will start um, pressors. I, I thought it was really interesting when I was reviewing the data, um, there are European studies that are looking um, strictly in the ICU, um, looking at what is available in terms of technology um, to help them assess fluid responsiveness and also um, fluid boluses that were given. There was one study, um, I think the Finesse study done in France, actually looked at um, almost 2,700 fluid boluses and looking at if if first fluid um, responsiveness tests were being done to give these fluids, and only about 52% of the boluses were given after some sort of assessment. And the surprising part, I thought, was that it doesn't really matter what the result of a fluid responsiveness assessment, whether um, the patient is uh, responsive, to fluid or not, um, subsequent boluses would still be given. So I think there is gray unknown in terms of what we're doing, um, resuscitating patients using fluids or using vasopressor. So this is an area, and we hope that this study could help inform. You had mentioned earlier about uh, dynamic versus static measures, and one of the evolving fields in critical care medicine, in fact, one of my main interests, is the development of these newer methods to predict whether or not a patient might respond to fluid. Can you tell me a bit more about how these methods differ from traditional methods? Yeah. Um, So 
giving fluid and doing the fluid responsive test, basically we want to um, assess where the patient is in Frank's stalling curve. I feel like we can't have a conversation about fluid um, resuscitation um, without mentioning the two words, Frank's stalling curve. Um, so anyway, so these are tests that, uh, these are technology that help us assess where the patients are on the curve. If we could give a small amount of fluid, achieving a much bigger um, increase in cardiac output um, and perhaps increased blood pressure and perfusion in these patients. Um, so the newer technology, uh, so, so let's talk about what's the difference between dynamic and static first. So dynamic, as the name means, that there is a change in something. So um, usually is when you give someone an um, intravascular volume expender, um, whether by lifting their legs above their head, giving them an um, increase intrathoracic sorry, increase um, intravascular volume from draining the legs or actually just giving a small bolus of fluid between 300 cc to 500 cc um, and so if you measure the hemodynamics before and after, you would see a change, and that would consider that would be considered as something that's dynamic. You're observing something that's changing. Whereas static is a measurement one point in time. If you were using CVP, that's a one-time measurement. If you were looking at um, the wedge pressure, that's one time in measurement. If you're looking at just um, the IVC diameter at one point in time, that's really not changing. But if you're doing a variation such as pulse pressure variation, you're looking at the change in, um, change in the pulse pressure when you have, say, increased intrathoracic pressure or you give someone bolus, and that change would be considered a variation. Anyway, so the dynamic will help you it's a preferred method in terms of um, surviving sepsis guideline using a dynamic measurement to assess the fluid responsiveness. There are definitely many different uh, fancy catheters that are out there being marketed to help assessing fluid responsiveness, like the popular ones that I could think of right now would be the transpulmonary catheters in terms of PICO, LITCO, or FLOTRAC, basically having a venous limb and an arterial limb that um, looking at um, changes in uh, either thermal di dilution or lithium um, dilution through the, through the heart-lung system and make calculation in terms of uh, alphabet soup of numbers such as cardiac output, stroke volume variation, um, pulse pressure variation. Um, there are also non-invasive methods, the um, cheetah machines, which is looking using bioreactants, um, looking at the resistance change by giving a fluid bolus. So these are more sort of dynamic variations that we could use to assess. So there are different numbers that we're looking for when we're looking for changes. Um, stroke volume has a, validated for about 10 to 12% change. Pulse pressure, depending on if you're intubated or if you're spontaneously breathing. Um, and IVC variation, so di IVC diameter is different from if you're actually looking at IVC um, 
variation when you are in different respiratory phases as well. So there are so many different methods, and I've tried to look for data to see if any specific method is any better than the other, and I don't think we have the answers yet. So people are doing the test. Theoretically, I think using these methods should help us guide um, therapy, um, but again, more studies are necessary to for us to really understand if it's um, how it should be done and when when we should use them. I, I'm curious, how do you guide fluid resuscitation? You you specifically when you're managing, let's say, a patient in sepsis. So I think locally, Elisa Montefiore ultrasound is one of the um, more popular tools that we use, um, especially when we're managing patients on the floor um, where you don't have the more invasive um, technology with you. So ultrasound is something that is popular here, um, and I do use it. I, I try to encourage my fellows to look at the variations in our measurements and not just looking at a single point in time because, again, um, I want to be teaching them using a dynamic method over a static method. When someone is in the ICU and I do have my arterial lines, um, I like looking at PPV uh, pulse pressure variation as well. I must confess I'm not the best in terms of using passive leg raise tests. Um, but I think I'm one of the few who still who does try to use them, but I don't think we're as good about using pass, passive leg raise than um, than not. How about you? Oh, I feel I feel very similarly. <laughs> passive leg raise seems to be such a great test that's cheap and easy to do. Even if you don't have uh, you know a, a fancy cardiac output monitor, it's still useful. But it requires putting that leg up for, you know, a couple minutes. And when you're in a busy ICU, no one ever seems to want to do that unless you have basically a captive medical student who doesn't have the ability to say no. Uh, we actually did a study at our own institution and found that in a large chunk of patients, um, the nurses stated that there didn't, they didn't feel like they had sufficient time to do it, uh, you know, because it takes roughly about four minutes to do it right. Uh, um, and if they're doing all these other things at the same time, yeah. I suppose if we had one of the pivoting beds, that might um, improve uh, acceptance. We we typically use a lot of ultrasound as well, uh, but I, I think our group is uh, very much kind of using a multi-dimensional approach in that we try to take every bit of information we can, including pulse pressure variation. And uh, I think we also take a very strong Bayesian approach, which is if the person's already gotten four liters in the past two hours, it's pretty unlikely that they're going to still be fluid responsive. And so that's, that's some of the stuff we do. Despite the fact that our group is extremely enthusiastic about ultrasound and echo, I think uh, there's, we still have a lot of skepticism about, uh, you know, um, widespread use. And I think in inexpert hands, uh, you can make a lot of misdiagnosis with it. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and in terms of, do you guys use any of those transpulmonary catheters as much? We do. Um, yeah. Yeah, so we um, we use, uh, just uh, by way of financial disclosure, we have no relationships with any of uh, these uh, these companies. Uh, we've used uh, FlowTrack and uh, NICOM, you know, the Cheetah. Uh, um, mm -hmm. And um, we've also used, we've tested out a couple of other um, uh, things that we have not used in widespread uh, applications. I think one of the initial challenges with FlowTrack was that its um, sensor didn't, 
I guess, uh, a pickup beat-to-beat variation. It took an average over a period of time, which mm-hmm. led to problems with respiratory variation unless you were perfectly synchronized to a vent. Um, but we found it works decently with passive leg raise. It works decently on some of our um, brain donor, uh, I'm sorry, brain-dead uh, organ donor patients. Um, uh, where they, there is no respiratory drive. And we use the uh, NICOM a lot for passive leg raise, but usually that's one of these things where we set it up and uh, it's easy to do if someone else is doing the actual passive leg raise. Um, uh, it's rare that I am actually doing it. And if I had to do it myself, I would probably, being the lazy person I am, try to talk myself out of uh, doing a passive leg raise as much as possible. Interesting. Um, and then I, I also saw, I, I think earlier we were talking about newer technology. Um, have you guys done using like anti-tidal CO2 changes to see if someone would be responsive? Um, I would uh, find that so interesting. We've thought about that and we've uh, discussed it, but in routine clinical practice, we've not uh, used that. And the nursing staff gets uh, saturated with some of these um, newer uh, technology right. and newer toys. Yeah. Well, I, I get very excited about this. Um, it requires a lot of training for respiratory therapy or nursing to, uh, you know, familiarize themselves with it. And so mm-hmm. it's, we, we've kind of been more selective about picking one or two methods rather than, you know, uh, bringing on 30 different new toys. Agree. Ultrasound is definitely what we do most here anyway. One of the things that I would really like to hear about is uh, there's a ton of challenges, I think, in involving a multicenter study. Uh, especially a large multicenter study on such a tight budget, which uh, you've successfully done. Uh, could you tell some of the listeners about uh, some of these challenges you faced in doing the volume chaser study? So I got um, a lot of ins- support from my own institution. Um, Dr. Gong is my mentor at Montefiore. Um, and working for, through Discovery Network, um, the network was able to provide me with a lot of advertisement and, and in terms of recruiting sites, and I feel like there is such a um, collegial relationship between all the network hospitals that people were so helpful in terms of teaching me and um, helping me get the study started. Uh, this is one of my first projects, um, so I'm very excited about how um, we have 38 hospitals involving in the study, um, and we enroll about 1,600 patients at this point. Um, so communication is key. We have meetings with everybody every other week to get everyone engaged um, and keep people informed in terms of um, what things need to be done. I think one of the main things that I learned from Michelle um, is Michelle, my mentor, is that I need to keep a good timeline for both um, the greater uh, network um, people who are involved in the study as well as keeping a good timeline for myself to stay on track. Um, And um, one would say that nagging is something that I do um, a lot in terms of (laughs) getting people um, to get their data in, to get the paperwork in. Yeah. so that that was a big challenge, and I think I learned a lot um, with working through this trial as well. Um, working with the lawyers, getting the cooperative agreement between sites, um, building REDCap was definitely fun and um, interesting. And I think now that we're wrapping up with the study, I'm 
I definitely learn a lot in terms of um, what is a good CRF and how to make sure that um, all the data elements that we need are being collected. Well, you mentioned the legal troubles or the legal challenges that you've had uh, with uh, doing a study. I can't, uh, I can't uh, agree more. That was something I had no idea was going to be such a big undertaking whenever uh, you want to collaborate outside your institution. Well, I'm glad someone is um, looking at the legal elements of it. So one, one other thing that I think might be interesting is the fact that because you're doing the study through the Discovery Network, which is largely a network of academic hospitals, uh, it's possible that you know these hospitals might have different practice patterns than hospitals outside the network, uh, like in regards to fluid resuscitation or choice of uh, vasopressors. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Do you think that um, the Discovery Network is representative of critical care hospitals across the uh, U.S., or do you think that these hospitals might be different than what usual care might be at other places? I agree with you that our assumption is that larger academic center would have newer technology and their practice may be different um, from a community hospital. Um, I think the good thing about being in the Discovery Network and be able to conduct this um, study through them is that we have included smaller community hospital in the study. Um, I, I think we will be able to inform some of the practice difference and maybe perhaps we won't find any um, differences between large and small um, hospitals. Well, I know you're still analyzing the study data. What are, you, what are you hoping to find with regard to Volume Chaser? So our main goal of the study is to see, to again, look at the practice variation and see if um, fluid responsiveness assessments are being done. Um, and our hypothesis is that um, there is going to be a difference in the amount of volume people receive depending on what type of uh, fluid responsiveness assessment, dynamic versus static, and also empiric, which is kind of our clinical exam looking at people's vital signs and um, things that we do as Gustav. Um, and we also want to look at vasopressor practice, uh, vaso practice um, in relationship to the fluid responsiveness assessments. So we're out of time. This concludes our Breathe Easy podcast. I'd like to invite any of our listeners who are interested in hearing Volume Chaser. It'll be presented at American Thoracic Society International Conference in San Diego this year at the Discovery Network. The details of the presentation will be available on the podcast website. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Tina Chen, for joining me in a great discussion. This is Michael Anspa for the American Thoracic Society Critical Care Assembly. Thank you.